Well, let's uh, stand together for the reading of the scripture. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, often in the reading of books, uh, both secular books, but also books of the Bible, we often skip over introductions. And no one less than Martin Lloyd-Jones said that when it comes to the letters of Paul, this is a grave error. And if anybody knows the preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones, Lloyd-Jones could stretch uh, more, ver- more sermons out of a single verse than I, I know anybody else. But uh, we're not going to go at Lloyd-Jones's pace this morning, but we are going to begin our study of the book of Ephesians by, first of all, looking at the introduction and the apostolic salutation this morning to the church at Ephesus. And if we have time, we may spill over uh, a little bit into verse uh, 3 as well. But I do want to spend a little bit of time because these verses, uh, though introductory, uh, are of very practical and doctrinal uh, value to the church and it's worthy of our congregation's consideration. We always want to remember what Jesus said, that God's word is God-breathed and that uh, all of God's word is breathed by God and it is profitable for uh, righteousness and uh, teaching and instruction and And uh, we want to spend time on that. Every jot and tittle has been inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit. So this morning, what I want to do is, first of all, I want us to consider uh, the subject of the will of God found in verse one, the will of God. And then secondly, the grace and peace of God uh, found in verse two. And then thirdly, in verse three, the blessing of God. So the will of God, verse 1, the grace and peace of God in verse 2, and then thirdly, the blessing of God. Now let's look at verse 1 together and see where we get this idea of being called by the will of God. Paul begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now we learn, of course, that Paul is the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of this epistle and that he was an apostle. We certainly learn that from our study of Second Corinthians as Paul defended his apostolic ministry in the light of those who were saying he was not really an apostle because he didn't walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry and by those who were claiming that they were apostles uh, superior to that of the Apostle Paul, when in fact they were false teachers. But Paul is an apostle, 
You remember that he was called here, as our text says, by the will of God. Now, this is important to understand that it is it is by the ministry of God that we are called to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, and one of the themes that you're going to see in the book of Ephesians time and time again is that this book is about God's will. One of the great themes that we find here. Let me just give you a little bit of sample of this. That, that it is the will of God that is so central. Look at verse 5. Not only do you have it in verse 1 that he, Paul was called by the will of God, but also in verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. <clears throat> now listen to this. According to the kind intention of what? His will. It was his will that caused us to be predestined before eternity, before the foundation of the earth. Look at verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of what? His will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Look at verse 11 in your Bible. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of what? His will. You could look at verse 12. Uh, To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be the praise of his glory. His will, his ends, his glory. Verse 14. This does not sound like the best life now for you, right? The focus isn't us, is it? The focus is on God. God's glory, God's will, God's purpose. The problem with the church is that often we are so anthropocentric, man-centered, And notice what the Spirit gives us here in this letter. Everything is theocentric. The church needs to focus on God. Contemplate God. Meditate on God and His attributes. His character. His being. His triune nature. Look at verse 14. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So we see that... This is not anything like that title, Your Best Life Now. It's not about us at all. It's about God. It's about His glory, His will, His purposes. Why did God make you, boys and girls? He made you for Himself. Why did God choose you who are in Jesus Christ this morning? He chose you for Himself and for His glory. Why did Jesus Christ die on the cross He did so chiefly for the glory of God and for the will of God. Did you know, it may surprise some of you, did you know that God did not send Jesus Christ into the world to die for your sins chiefly for your salvation? Now, yes, he did do that for your salvation, but that was not even his chief motive. That God's chief purpose was not in the salvation of men, but in his own glory. That he should be glorified in the salvation of sinners. He should be glorified in his mercy and in his Free grace to people who don't deserve grace, who deserve to go to hell, who deserve judgment, who deserve eternal punishment. So we, we, we need to focus ourselves as we study this book on the glory of God, the will of God, the counsel of God, the decrees of God, the predestinating purposes of God. It's all of God. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end of the church. God is is all and in all. And, and we need to challenge ourselves and, and maybe stimulate ourselves. Is God 
my Alpha and my Omega? Is he my beginning and my end? Do I do all things for God? Am, am I content in life with God's will, God's glory? Am I content with that? You know, I think some of the most miserable of, of people are, are those who are focused on themselves and their own happiness. And notice how the apostle immediately from the very first sentence of this letter takes our eyes off of ourselves. And it's not about ourselves or my ambitions or my plans for my future. It's not about what I want. But it is chiefly about God. God's plans for me. God's will. God's design. God's glory. That's what I live for. You know, that is, I believe, the secret of contentment is when we can make it our only ambition to be a child of God and to do the will of God. And if, if you make that your chief ambition, you're going to find the secret to contentment. This is why I believe contentment is so rare. Is because our focus on God is so rare. This is why, even though America becomes more and more affluent in the world over compared to what your grandparents had. And we are less and less content. We have more things. We have more money. We can get it faster, cheaper. And yet we are as discontent as ever. And we are poor and miserable. And we pity ourselves. And why is that? Because we've lost sight of the will of God. We don't focus on the Lord. Instead we focus on ourselves and what I Desire, my plans, my lusts, my ambitions. But not so with the Apostle Paul. He was content. How can you be content just with food and raiment, as Paul says? Paul says, if I, if I just but have food and clothing, with this I am content. And you say, oh, come up now, Paul. Surely that's some kind of hyper hyperbolic language there. So surely that's some kind of exaggeration. No, he was serious. He, he was writing from prison when he, when he said those things. It was because he was content with the will of God. Now this is not to say that Paul didn't have disappointments. He had plenty of disappointments. He entered into the humiliation of Jesus many times over. We looked at those sufferings time and again in 2 Corinthians as he laid them out for us. But his, his focus was not on the sufferings. He didn't even want to talk about his sufferings. He only did it because he had to defend himself against false accusers that thought he was in it for base motives. When he said, look, if I was in this for reasons other than the will of God, I wouldn't be suffering the way I am. Look at, the, look at my life. My life has not been a picnic since I became an apostle. Beatings, imprisonment, stonings, shipwreck, left on the sea. And yet... He was content with these things because it was the very will of God for his life. Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And it shows us here that the apostleship was not given unto men. It was not, it was not chosen by men. It was chosen by, by Christ. This is a very limited office. It was, a, it was a temporary office. It was a foundational office, the office of apostle. You know, that you can drive past a church here in town and it even says, you know, so-and-so, an apostle. And I, I want to say, are you kidding me? What chutzpah? <laughs> do you do the works of an apostle? You know, I, 
the apostleship was, was that office given by the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, to lay the foundation of the church. The church's foundation was laid by the prophets and by uh, the apostles. Christ being our chief cornerstone. We'll see that in this book. One of the things we're going to study is that very idea. So Paul did not take this ministry up by himself. You know his biography. He, he was a persecutor of the church. He was a blasphemer of God. He wanted to destroy the church of Christ. He was locking up not only men, boys and girls. He was locking up mothers and grandmothers and throwing them in jail because he, of his vitriolic hatred of the church and of Christ and of Christ's people. This is not a man who was seeking his own office. This was a man who was uh, persecuting Jesus. When Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, what did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my people? No, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Christ. And not only have I stopped you from persecuting my people, but I am going to call you as an apostle. I'm calling you not only to become a believer in me, but to be a minister unto the Gentiles for me. Isn't that what Ananias objected to when he heard, I want you to go lay hands on Paul? He said, Lord, isn't this the man that's been persecuting the church? Yes, but this is my will for him. And I will show him how much he must suffer. It was all the plan of God. It was the will of God. And the gospel is is God's plan and it is God's will and the church is God's plan and it is God's will. There is no plan B. The church is the plan of God. He raised up an apostle. He raised up the apostle Paul in Christ by his own will for the church because the church would be his plan to apply the salvation of Jesus Christ to the nations of the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, every single nation would come to hear the gospel because this is part of the plan of God. And that makes it exciting, doesn't it? When you think about missions and evangelism and praying because we know we're not praying in vain. We can pray for our missionaries. We can give deeply in our pockets to our missionaries. We can evangelize winsomely, but yet boldly. Because we know this is the will of God to build his church. And Jesus said, I will build my church. And if you know it's the will of God, that gives you the confidence to pray more. Gives you the confidence to go forward. You see, people want to criticize. We'll get into predestination here probably next Sunday. But people want to criticize Calvinists that this is going to be a hindrance to missions. And I'm going to suggest to you that if it does hinder your idea of missions and evangelism, you don't understand the sovereignty of God right. It, this should motivate you because I say, you know, this is the will of God. I don't have to, I don't have to wonder what the will of God is in, in one sense for my life. Now, I'm not talking vocationally, but I'm saying here, God has told the church what to do. And this is his plan. So Paul was called to be an apostle. And it was part of God's plan from eternity past. And such a call was in the mind of God for you as well this morning. If you're here this morning in Jesus Christ, God had a plan for you. And this plan is one that he, he had for you even before he ever said, let there be light. 
ever before he put the sun in its course to run by day and the moon to govern the night. The, The plan of God was already before him for your salvation. He called you, he chose you rather, by name. He would later call you effectually in Christ Jesus. And this calling was of his will. Jesus said to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you. You love me because I first loved you. It was his plan, his will, his love, his grace. And if you're not a believer here this morning, I want to invite you to become a believer in Jesus Christ. You might be saying, well, what is this the will of God that I should become a believer? Well, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I can assure you that it is the will of God. And, but here's the point. You are not to sit there and try and say, well, what's the will of God? But you are to respond to what Jesus says when he says, come unto me. Come unto me. And believe. Our, our job is not to seek out, search out the secret counsel of God's will. But it is to heed and hear the gospel. And believe on Jesus Christ. And go to Christ. And love Christ. And say yes to Christ. And believe upon Him. And trust Him. Follow Him. Keep His commandments. Repent of our sins. Turn to Him. Love Him. And as you do so and you put your trust in Him, you will, you will find God's plan at work in your life. Think about eternity for a minute. This calling of Paul to be an apostle. This plan of God's was long ago. Think how long God has had you on his mind. Hundreds of years. Thousands of years. Even before creation. Eternity passed. And he has called you to Christ. It means something about the great love of God, I think, doesn't it? When it says how long he has had us on his mind. This epistle is about God's will. And it was God's pleasure and God's plan and God's purpose. If you're here in Jesus Christ to bring you to himself through faith in Jesus Christ. He gave you even the faith you have. It's a gift. It didn't originate with you. Everything is of God. Everything is from God. It's all according to God's plan. Now somebody out there is saying, but this makes me a robot. No, it doesn't. No, my friend, it does not make you a robot. You are a a responsible human agent. You are accountable for what you do and what you believe before God. And God will hold you accountable for it. And you cannot blame God if on the day of judgment you are on the wrong side of the aisle on the day of judgment. You will have only yourself to blame. If you're standing next to Judas... You and Judas cannot plead, oh, but this was your plan, Lord. I was just fulfilling your plan. No, my friends. He has called you to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You say, how can I do what I don't have the ability to do? You call upon the name of the Lord. And pray to Him. Ask Him for the grace to believe, the grace to repent, the grace to follow Christ. Jesus said, they who come unto him, he will in no way reject if you will believe and come to him. 
You know, it's amazing when you think about the will of God for our lives. Did you know none of us would be here this morning in this building, in this church, listening to this sermon if it wasn't for the will of God? None of us would be here. None of us would have even ventured into a Presbyterian church building had it not been for the grace of God, the will of God, the plan of God. None of us who know Jesus Christ would have ever professed faith in Jesus Christ except for the will of God. It, we, we did not want to believe in Christ. We were not born that way. It was not inherent within us. There was nothing, there was no thread of goodness still unaffected, untainted by the fall of Adam and Eve that somehow maybe that one strand of goodness in the DNA somewhere deep down could reach out and say, yeah, I'll believe. All of us were against God. As Michael Horton likes to say, we were looking for God the way a thief is looking for a policeman. We didn't want him. But it was the will of God that we, like Paul, should be called off our high horse, humbled, convicted of our sin, shown the righteousness of the Lord and cry out, Lord, who are you? This ought to humble us. It shouldn't make us proud. The will of God should make us humble, knowing that it's all of grace and that we're here only by grace. I'm not better than anybody else. In many ways, I'm worse. There are people who are inherently better than us that will not have eternal life. Did you know that? There are people that by nature are better people than you. that will not have an eternal life. And the only difference is the will of God, His grace in my life. You know, I've used this illustration in the past. I'll use it again. Jacob and Esau. Look, Jacob was as much of a stinker, boys and girls, wasn't he, as Esau. Was Jacob better than Esau? You look at their lives. Jacob's a stinker. He lies. He cheats. He steals. And God chooses Jacob. Jacob, I love. Esau, I hated. It's part of the will of God. And Jacob had to learn this the hard way. I mean, God had to humble him. God had to put a limp in his leg and get him to that point where he would trust in him and not in himself. It took a long time. But he got there because of the will of God. I want you to let these ideas sink into your mind. Because I think if you'll meditate on these ideas, I think you'll find your heart warmed. I think you'll find your obedience confirmed in Jesus Christ. I think you'll find it easier to obey Jesus. I think you'll find it more sweet, more pleasant, more, more joyful. I think you'll find the troubles and the trials and the tribulations of life, and there are many of them. In fact, I think they increase when you become a Christian. I don't think they decrease. I think God sets us up as an example of how to suffer for other people who are not believers at times. And so I think our tribulations sometimes are, are greater in some ways. But yet, this is a part of the plan and the will of God, and if, if we focus on the will of God for our lives, I think we will find a sweetness, a contentment, a joy, a peace. I want you to think about this. I think also by way of application, I think it should cause us, as we think about the will of God, to consider fleeing in our thoughts uh, from ourselves. 
Where would we be without the will of God? What wretchedness would we have been mired in were it not for the will of God? What kind of existence, what kind of eternity would we have had had it not been for the will of God? You know, God willed that you be raised one day from the dead and live in eternity in new heaven and new earth. It's unimaginable when you think about the, what eternity is, what, what, what a world without sin is, a world of love, a world of joy. No wonder it causes unbelievers to think it fanciful. It's all glorious, all too glorious. God's will for you that your, that your uh, sin would be on Jesus and, and God's wrath would be placed on Jesus for your sins. Uh, God willed that Jesus die for those sins. Drop of blood by drop of blood, labored breath by labored breath on that cross, wave of judgment upon wave of judgment upon his soul as outer darkness enveloped him on that cross and he cried out with what breath he had, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because of the will of God. It was the will of God that sent the Holy Spirit into your life, into your heart to regenerate you. Our stones, the Bible says, were like, our hearts rather, the Bible says were like stone, hard, boys and girls, impenetrable, cold, impersonal. God broke down those stones. He took away that stony heart and gave us a heart of flesh, a heart of life, a heart of love, a heart of mercy. God willed that you would hear the gospel if you are in Jesus Christ. So do you see how precious the will of God is for you? And you can see why under the inspiration of the Spirit it would be the very first sentence out of the apostles' inspired mouth or the first words out of that pen as he put it to the scroll. Look at this also in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's written to a particular group of people. It's a church. Now, the, some of the oldest manuscripts, there are a few, three or so manuscripts that don't have the word at Ephesus there. But... Uh, Nevertheless, it was probably uh, reliable that it was written to the church at Ephesus. But we have to remember those letters that were written to Ephesus often were circular letters that were shared with other congregations as well. But notice that this is written to a particular people. This letter is from God to the church and particularly a particular congregation of believers in in what we would call Asia Minor today, in Turkey, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice this epistle is written uh, to saints, and it's important that we understand the essential meaning of that word saints. Uh, I think the Roman Catholic Church does a disservice to that term, that word, uh, for they tend to reserve the word saint only for those people who stand out in their own tradition, uh, they use the word saint for their heroes, uh, but I would suggest to you that the Bible indicates that the word saint 
applies to any and all, even the weakest and poorest of believers in the church of Jesus Christ. Those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all sincerity are the saints of God. It's not just for those who have done works of super arrogation, but it is to each and every believer, even children. If you notice in chapter 6 of this epistle that Paul directs his attention to children. And remember, he addresses the children in here in in verse 1 of chapter 1. He called them saints. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So Paul certainly had children in mind as well when he spoke of saints. Many children believe in the Lord Jesus Christ at a very young age. There are some of you, maybe even adults, who can't really remember a particular day you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith in Jesus Christ seemed to be there from the beginning. And that it doesn't matter uh, if you can't remember a particular date. I, I love the words of Spurgeon. Spurgeon loved to say that uh, he didn't know, need to know what time the sun rose in the morning to know if it was daytime or not. The question is, are you in the daylight? I think some of our uh, brethren in the Baptist tradition make too much of having to know a particular day or hour uh, of when they became a believer. Now, for some of us, we, we do know. It was much more sudden. Uh, we, we were living a, a reprobate life and convicted of our sins, repent, believe on Christ. The question is, are, are you in the daylight today? Or are you still in the darkness? If you want to be a saint, it comes by faith in Jesus Christ. We are made and declared righteous by Christ and not by our works. You see, that's where Roman Catholics get it all wrong. Now, I'm not saying they don't believe in faith, but they say, oh, yeah, you're justified by faith plus your works. And if your works are really super, really great, really extraordinary, why then do we call you a saint? And if you have works of super arrogation, why works that are even greater than what God would even require of a mere mortal man, why then we deposit the extra merit in our treasury back in Rome? I kid you not, this is, this is the teaching and doctrine of Rome. And, we, and the Pope has the right to dispense out of the treasury of merit uh, those who you know, pay indulgences or whatever. And they can be given some of that merit out of the treasury. What a shame. What a shame. What does that say about the righteousness of Jesus? We are saints because Christ imputed his righteousness to me. You're as righteous as Billy Graham, boys and girls. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that God has declared you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be as righteous as the most eminent and most useful men who serve Jesus Christ today. You are as justified as they are because you have the very same righteousness. It is not based on your works. It is based on the works of Christ. And Christ alone. And it is his righteousness that you have. So the weakest, the poorest of believers is just as justified, just as righteous as the most mature believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the the righteousness of Christ, the, the term saint is a judicial term in a sense. It's a declarative term. It's a one-time. You're, you're either a saint or you're not. 
And you become a saint through faith in Christ, not by how much work you do. It is not a matter of sanctification. It is a matter of justification. You are made a saint by declaration, not by maturation. Does that make sense? So it's important that we understand it. You see how even in this single verse, the gospel is right there in the opening verse of this epistle. I mean, you could, you could make a case that this, this opening verse splits the Protestant and Roman Catholic Church right there because it, we have disagreement on what that term saint means. Now, I want to move on, talk about the will of God in verse 1. Secondly, the grace and the peace of God. And I'm going to have to move more quickly. I won't spend as much time here. The grace and the peace of God in verse 2. The will of God was there in verse 1 by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus. Now, verse 2, to the, the grace of God. The grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this verse is not unique to the epistle at Ephesus. This is a common apostolic salutation that Paul used to like to use. And it conveys here what we've already been speaking about. Grace being that unmerited favor of God towards sinners. Towards people who inherently are unrighteous. But yet God shows them favor, grace, love, mercy. All of that unmerited or sometimes I like to use the word demerited. I'm never quite certain why theologians use the word unmerited instead of demerited. I would think we have demerited because of our sin. But what an encouragement that within the will of God, we should find in the very next sentence, it would speak of God's blessings of grace. Now, somebody asked Sinclair Ferguson, who just recently wrote a book on grace, and I haven't read it yet. But just because it has Sinclair Ferguson's name on it, I would read it. And I encourage you to read it if you can beat me to it. Why another book on grace? And Ferguson's reply I thought was interesting. He said, oh, that I wish the world was filled with books on grace. I wish we had more books on grace. And I thought that was a good response to that. Grace is is of such importance is that condescending love that God in Jesus Christ has sovereignly bestowed to us, not while we were doing good works, but while we were sinners, while we were rebellious. While Paul was persecuting the church, he was shown grace. And it was grace that turned him. It's grace that turned us. It, it wasn't our works. It wasn't, it wasn't the pursuit of righteousness. It wasn't obedience to the law. But it, it was grace. And, and my friends, if, if you don't understand the concept of grace, you have not found the heart of the gospel. The gospel is of God's free grace. It's not of the works. You, you, know, you realize when you read Luke 15, the problem with the prodigal son and the older brother is neither of them understood grace. Now, and they demonstrated that in different ways. One, the younger brother showed that he did not understand grace because when he went and lived that prodigal life and he spent all of his father's wealth on immoral living and he came back destitute, 
What was his planned response to the father? He was going to say to the father, what? I'm not worthy to be your son. And he did get those words out. But what was the second part that he was going to say, but his father cut him off and wouldn't let him say the the son, the younger brother wanted to say, make me as one of your hired servants. He didn't understand grace. And what happens? The younger brother comes and and he he begins his rehearsed speech and he says, father, I am not worthy to be called your son. Now, that's true. (laughs) That's true. That part's true. You're not worthy to be called his son. And then what? The father cuts him off and says, bring out. The robe and the ring and the fattened calf. What does the father do? The father cuts him off and shows him grace. The son is not worthy, but he will be shown grace. And he will be made a son. And he won't have to earn his way back into family favor. He will be simply brought back to the position that he formerly had prior to sinning. His standing with the Father has not changed. That ought to be an encouragement to those of you who have sinned and failed. And those sins haunt you. You need to come back and you need to say, Father, I am not worthy to be your son. But Lord, I need your grace. Because God, by his grace, will not change your position. Even in failures and sins that plague our consciences. My standing is not based upon my obedience. You know, if you can't get over a past sin of yours, you need to ask yourself what kind of religion you have. You need to ask yourself, do I really have a religion of grace? Do I understand grace? Do I understand that I am as acceptable today with the Father positionally before Him as I was prior to that fall or that failure or that sin? You see, the younger brother didn't understand grace. But we can't just blame the younger brother. The older brother didn't understand grace either. Because even though he never left the farm, what's his response? So the grace that is shown to the younger brother, the younger brother is given grace and he doesn't rejoice in it. Instead, he gets bitter about it. He gets mad about it and he thinks, boys and girls, it's unfair. He says, I've never left the farm. I've done everything you told me to do. Every chore on this farm that you would have me do, I did it. I've worked for you. I've borne the heat of the day for you. While this younger son of yours, notice he didn't call him his brother. He said, this son of yours, distancing himself from his brother, squandered everything. This this son of yours was out sinning and wasting your life and bringing shame to the family name. And you show him grace. You show him favor. You give him a ring again. You give him a robe again. You kill the fattened calf for him. And I've been working here this whole time, slaving it out for you. And I use that word intentionally, slaving it out for you on this farm. And I don't get anything. I don't have a, you've never thrown me a party. Now, what are we to learn about that? The older brother, even though he never left in open rebellion, he, if I can put it this way, he stayed in church. He never, he never went wild in college. 
He didn't sow wild oats. He stayed in the pew. He was there Sunday morning, Sunday night. He was there on Wednesday. But what? What's his response? He thinks he's working, he's slaving for his relationship with God. His relationship to the Father is one of servitude. It is not one of sonship. And so what we learn in that parable, it's a very important parable because Jesus was speaking both to sinners and to Pharisees. And there's a tendency in each of us to both, isn't there? There's a tendency for us at times to be sinners and there's a tendency within our heart to be Pharisees. And both groups before Jesus did not understand grace. This is a very, very important concept that you understand. Whether your tendency is to rebel from this church and go out and live a wild life at the University of Georgia, or whether your tendency is to slave it out here in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, gritting your teeth the whole time, thinking, I'm not getting these blessings from God, and here I am being faithful. Listen, you, neither of you have come to understand grace yet. And you need to recognize neither of you are worthy to be called a son. But grace is extended to both of you. Did you notice what, what Jesus says about the father in response to the older brother? He invited the older brother to come into the house and celebrate. Because this son who once was dead, once was spiritually lost, once was who, who was once excommunicated, has now been brought back into the church, into the family of God, into the visible communion and fellowship with the father. And now the older brother should be celebrating because that's what the angels in heaven do when they see grace work. The angels in heaven celebrate over the conversion of a single solitary sinner. And here's a guy in the visible church who is angry at grace being shown. You know, Jesus gave us that parable, the guys who were working in the vineyard and some of them were there, they were prompt, they were, they were hired in the morning, you know, you know they, they were the A personality, and they got hired for a day's wage, they go out, the uh, workmen, the foreman see some other guys there a little bit later, well they were late, but we got still plenty to do, this is a big harvest, come on, they go, and that goes through the day, some guys didn't show up till after lunch, had a big night out last night. Uh, and uh, now they don't get hired till some guys. I don't know what these guys were doing all day. Probably wasn't good, but they show up at four o'clock in the afternoon. And the foreman says, "Well, we got one hour left. Sure, come on." And they go out in the field, and they start with the last first. And they get the last guys. The guys who worked one hour got paid a full day's wage. So the guys who started at six a.m. they're thinking. All right. If those guys got a full day's wage, ka-ching. I'm surely going to get two days worth of wages based on what they got. But they didn't understand what? They didn't understand grace. And so when they got one day's wage, they were what? They were mad. They felt cheated. And the and the owner of the farm had to remind them, guys, I haven't done any I haven't done you any wrong. I gave you what we agreed for. I gave you a day's wage. 
Now, if I want to be generous, if I want to be gracious to these men, what is that to you? That's no skin off your teeth. It's my money. It's my favor. It's my grace. And the thing is that God loves mercy and God loves grace. And he loves sometimes to spend it lavishly or prodigality, if that's a word. Tim Keller's prodigality of God, that God lavishes grace on people who are completely undeserving. Now the point is we're all undeserving. But God, by showing grace to others, has not done anything wrong to you. The fact that God showed Jacob grace and not Esau, that's no, it's no fault of God's towards Esau. Esau got justice. Esau got what he merited, what he deserved, what he earned. But Jacob was shown grace even though he was as much of a stinker, or a wicked man as, as his brother was. Grace to you. Think about that. Grace to you. Paul writes, grace to you. Grace to you. Grace to you. Think about that. That God has given me grace. God has given me grace. He's lavished grace on me. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones has said that the gospel might be most clearly explained in the book of Romans, but the majesty of it might be most shown here in the epistle to the Ephesians. I mean, you look at the the language that Paul is about to use here, verse 8. He lavished on us according to the riches of His grace. Verse 7, according to the riches of His grace. He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known the mystery of His will. But this idea of the superabundance of grace and mercy. Well, i got to close here. I'm running out of time. But have you known anything of this grace? This grace, this favor of God, you can know it. Notice what it says there in verse 2. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And note there that that Jesus Christ is co-equal with the Father. This shows you the divinity of Jesus. That Jesus is as very much God of God as the Father is. It could not be spoken any other way without it being blasphemy. I mean, that's why the Sanhedrin thought Jesus blasphemed. When he made himself out to be God. Because he was fully God. And if you come to Christ, you've come to God. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you'll lay down your life and say, Lord, have mercy on me. He will show mercy. He is rich in mercy. He loves mercy. loves grace. But you must come. You must believe. And if you haven't come, I need you to come. Even today, this can be the day of salvation, the Bible says. It is the day of salvation. It is a day of gospel. It is a day of grace. It is a day to believe a day of repentance. Let's pray together.